Hello and welcome to Crackle Comics episode 30. We're we're at that big 3-0 where we're all slightly older and sadder as the world gets worse. It's, it's not a horrible, not a good way to start a podcast, but we're going to talk about comic books. I'm Mike. I'm Dan. I'm Vincent. Well, let's get into actually talking about comic books. Aquaman number 62. Yes, Aquaman number 62, written by Jordan Clark, art by Marco Santucci. So, oops, it's another fill-in. Uh, DC should watch out because last time they did this, I bought a piece of original art. Um, that was the... Actually, I think that was st- maybe still written by Kelly C. DeConnick. I don't even remember, but that w- had art by Aaron Lepresti. The framing device this time is Aquaman and Aquagirl Tula at the royal wedding between Mera and Volko, which I guess is still proceeding. In the meantime, Aqualad Jackson Hyde wants to investigate Zebel, but he fights his dad first, who calls him Aquasnitch, for they make a deal where he hands over his mech grandpa in exchange for some shenanigans he's going to do for his dad. There are some humongo fish in this story, which are drawn kind of funny. And then basically the what happens here is eventually we get a little bit of backstory on jackson's mom and then the trench attack in zebel Eh, this issue is kind of eh, i guess this will be two a two issue story and whatever it, it, it's nice to turn some focus to supporting characters like this like focus on jackson or other characters as it were but with the shutdown like you know putting a big gap between releases of some of these series and and everything like that and also that that we know that Connick's run is ending in like a couple issues anyways i'd kind of rather just go full steam ahead and just have her finish her story and not distract with this the art here is all right i know santucci drew mark russell's swamp thing run which was in the walmart slash giant issues whatever they're called so at some point i'll read more of him not as familiar with the writer jordan clark you know, he's probably done some stories in those 80-page giants that I waste my time on. But the writing was just kind of fine, too. I think you could totally skip this issue, or maybe not. We'll see. It was fine. Dan, you ready to talk about Captain America? I'm always ready to talk about Captain America. Captain America, number 22, written by Tanahasi Coates, uh, with art by Bob Quinn. I feel like I just read an issue from this series. You know, it's been pretty recently since I read the last one. This issue starts off with Sharon Carter and General Ross, where uh, Ross is kind of giving her a debrief on this woman called Alexa, who was part of a Hydra sleeper cell who made its way into the U.S., uh, what a shocker. But right before Ross is about to give Sharon some more information, Tony, who's like, who's like this woman that's working with her, tells her that Cap has engaged Celine in Adamsville, which we saw from last issue. Then gets some fight scenes with Cap, Sam and Bucky, uh, more so with Falcon than Cap and Bucky, really, I would say. Cool to see. You know, it's kind of nice to see kind of some character development with him. Uh, his suit is pretty cool, too, I guess. I don't know what your guys' opinions is on that. But back at the base with Sharon, she is met by Agatha and Shuri, who had come through this portal. And Sharon starts, like, hugging Shuri and is like, oh, my God, I'm so glad you're here. Back in Adamsville, we find out that Cap is one-on-one with Celine. I guess Falcon and... Bucky got like beat up or thrown aside or something. So we kind of get some like taunting and baiting going on with Celine, talking to Cap about what he symbolizes and how it's like meaningless and all this stuff, you know, just trying to make him mad. At at one point, Cap actually beats her and defeats her and stuff like that. But Celine is actually able to turn the tide and 
actually starts biting Cap in the shoulder, which I think is a little weird. I'm not sure if she's like a vampire or whatever. But uh, just when Cap is about to be sacrificed to like these like demigorgon looking things, Sharon shows up in a suit of armor. I'm assuming Shuri helped her mate. Maybe not. Probably. And Agatha is also there. You know, before this, we kind of get Sharon like suiting up and like getting ready. And we get a bunch of narration from her, you know. And she basically says that she comes through the portal that she can do this all day. So I cringe at that because obviously it's an MCU reference. And uh, this is actually one of two MCU references that, you know, lines that reference an MCU line that I will be covering tonight. So stay tuned for the next one in my next issue that I'll be recapping. But that is Captain America number 22. I thought it was pretty good. I think it went pretty fast. Yeah, the Iron Man suit with Sharon Carter is a little weird. Well, it's the Iron Patriot suit, which I'm guessing they just had lying around from U.S. Avengers, a different uh, Iron Patriot in that series. Who read that I did, suit? I didn't read it. I just knew it was in there. I mean, hey, it was that was Jim Zub, wasn't it? So it was probably good, since we like his work. But I just, I, I like this issue. I, I love or hate it uh, for me on the Falcon costume. I prefer the red and white costume, not this more like streamlined red and black one. I like the the kind of the classic red and white, but. The weirdest part of this book that I'm now realizing is, remember when in an absolute carnage where they took out <laughs> Thunderbolt Ross's spine for the, the Codex machine, and he's not oh, yeah. dead? How'd that work if it was an LMD? That doesn't make sense. And then Celine should be part of the whole Krakoa thing, but this series started way before Hickman's X-Men stuff, so this is just like completely, I guess, taking place before hawks pox i guess that's the only way to make sense of this but it is what it is i like i did like the incorporation of alexa being uh used as kind of a fallout from secret empire but once again it's 2020 that was like back in what 2017 2018 i thought it was like 2016 it might be like i think it was announced back then like i'm just trying to think like when it ended but yeah it's it Coates is still using a fallout from that when I just kind of wish it would be over with. And because of the pandemic and because of this book ships monthly, it just is, you know, it's just, it's not steamrolling right ahead. It's just kind of stopped in its tracks and it's, we're still trying to get over that hump. But other than that, Bob, uh, Bob Q's art's great. And uh, this still continues to be a pretty good Captain America book. But I think at least my theory, I think they're going to bring in Shuri and they're going to use some of the energy from uh, Celine probably to de-age Sharon back to being young because she's been old ever since uh, the end of Dimension <laughs> Z. Remender. So yeah. I, I feel like that's we should have uh, fixed long ago at this point. Still good. X-Men Corner! Empire X-Men number four is written by Hickman by himself. The rest of the series was doing that weird musical chairs thing, but I guess he decided to cap it off. Art by Jorge Molina and Lucas Wernick. Now, so... First of all, this first page kicks off with Scarlet Witch, which is kind of what I've been waiting for this series to get back to. And of course, this is the final issue. It's definitely an X-Men point of view with regards to Wanda. Doctor Strange basically tells her off as a walking mess. And it's like, you can kind of hear Doctor Strange as like projecting from X-Men fans or, or vice versa. And he, unfortunately, to help out his walking a mess sorceress buddy he bails on a besties date with wong at a french restaurant just a little comedy bit and strange basically undoes the whole thing but 
it'll take 30 days essentially for the, this is the whole zombie mess to, to stop. So it turns out that the whole empire invasion and, and X-Men converging on Genosha, that all um, coincides with the final day of the spell, you know, wearing off. Beast figures out something or other. I don't really know exactly what he does. He like cops some uh, technology from the horticulture and somehow helps with something. And I guess it's, it's, it's something to do with reviving this character. So this is kind of the first appearance of Explodey Boy. And the thing is, we already saw Explodey Boy as a zombie, but this is like the alive version of him. Because some of these Genosian zombies have been resurrected subsequently on Krakoa. So there's actually like a duplicate. So there's a zombie version of this character and a resurrected version. And they have a moment together. And it's actually a really interesting concept and some pretty heartfelt dialogue and, and ideas here. And then the zombie version sacrifices his unlife, as it were, to kill the giant plant kaiju, which basically ends the day. All the plants die and, the, and then the spell wears out and all the zombies disappear. And the whole, like, in the last issue, Ileana randomly turned into, like, a demon form. It was acting really weird and she continues that here. And then the spell wears out and it applies to her as well. And she chills out and it's like embarrassing, but like, I never fully understood what was going on with Ileana in this series or the, in these issues. And it didn't, it wasn't quite as funny to me as maybe they thought it was. So it just didn't remotely land with me on any level. But otherwise, I mean, addressing the Scarlet Witch thing, I was waiting for this series to get back to that. And then the whole Explodey Boy bit was really cool. So this is my favorite issue of the series. And I kind of wish that we just had like the first four pages of issue one and then this whole issue and you could have combined it into one issue and told the majority of the story. And it didn't have to, I mean, Hickman fit it in and it does fit sort of, but this also didn't really have to have, have to do anything with empire or anything like that. But there was a little kernel of an interesting, interesting story here. Yeah. The, the exploding boy stuff was really good. Uh, that was definitely the best parts. I liked the Wanda parts, at least from the design voice that they went with on it. Hopefully I don't, I mean, I don't see her sticking around any of the Krakoa series at this point anyway, since it, I think at least you and I view her more as an Avengers character anyway. So that, um, would make sense but you know that's how marvel decides to use her marvel decides to use her but no uh, overall i thought this was fun it was probably an issue too long maybe two issues too long it probably could have been wrapped up in two issues or three issues and not four especially where the best issues were you know the bookends while uh two and three were just kind of wacky chaos but i like lucas Wernick's art and he was inking himself too um so i liked his art here but otherwise like this is our this is our first Empire miniseries that's done. We have two more to go. I mean, Scarlet Witch is an Avengers character for sure, but she's also an Avengers mutant, or she should be. Yeah, I was going to say she should be. Of course, obviously, when she said no more mutants, she was a mutant. And then, you know, the, the retcon has been since then, and the, you know, basically the, ex the reasoning for the retcon no longer exists with the Fox acquisition. So, you know, it is a lingering question. Hypothetically, Hickman could fix that if he gave a shit and wanted to and if Marvel allowed him to. So it's a possibility that 
she does appear again and he does something. Who knows? I would say probably unlikely, but it, it's possible. Yeah. All right. Second X-Men book, which I believe was just me, right? You didn't read this, which is uh, Excalibur number 11. This is Teamy Howard, Marcus Toe. The team's just kind of planning their next move out in Otherworld, regrouping after Shogo was badly injured in the last issue. He has like a giant cut across his body. And they're staying with these priestesses at this like kind of commune uh, to like just kind of chill and hang out. Um, and basically it's decided that Jubilee has to stay with her son while they go to the Citadel to crash Lady Saturn's Citadel in retaliation. There's more stuff with Richter and Apocalypse that honestly, I quite frankly don't remember at all about because I can't remember the last time I read this book. But hey, the team gets to the Citadel and Betsy lays the ultimatum on the table that they're going to have to work together. And then like there's this weird bit we're like, it seemed like the issue was over, but then it wasn't where Rogue and Gambit also get into some fun stealing stuff from inside, which felt tacked on and very out of place for the rest of the issue. It, it's fine. I I just don't see myself reading this book anymore. Honestly, I just, I like the cast of characters, but I'm just really just not interested in what's really going on, which is a shame uh, because I like Oh, everyone involved in making the book, but it's just not something for me at this point. Vince, you sticking with Excalibur at all, or are you are you off the ship since you missed this issue? I'm not sure. I missed this issue. Who knows? And then I think in the next one or two or three issues for all of these X-Men series, it's about to get into a giant crossover, which I don't really know if I want to read that at all. So honestly, I'm kind of currently making the decision of do I want to just bail or take a pause on everything X-Men or do I want to go back to reading everything X-Men to read this 22 part crossover? And to me, one of those seems a lot more preferable. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you here. I don't, I, I don't know if it was the pandemic slowing things down or it's uh, like fatigue from that, from getting delays in the books or, just fatigue from the line being so bloated, but I have no kind of excitement towards X of Swords, Ten of Swords at this point to me. I, I think I'm going to try to read it, but I don't see myself finishing it. It's kind of almost like this thing, like if you don't read it either, like I don't see myself finishing it at all. So I guess we'll come to that crossroads when we come to that crossroads. I mean, it's not even, it's it really has nothing even to do with the quality of the books or my interest in the books. It's literally, for me, literally the only thing that's dissuading me is the fact that it's 22 parts yeah but also it, uh, we'll have to i mean i'm kind of playing it by ear because it's a 22 part crossover but like is it really you know like you know you could argue i'm sure empire could be explained as like a 50 part crossover however many damn times there are so the actual structure the actual specific structure of X of Swords and how much issue to issue continuity there is and whether you can just follow the series you actually like and get a grasp of it, who knows? And that'll, you know, Marvel's not going to tell us really until the books actually come out. Yeah, and with that, I think uh, the X-Men books remain up in the air for us on that regard. But, you know, I think, well, we'll see where they go. I mean, they're listed as each issue is, like each book is issued as part with a number attached to it. And I just, I just like remember things in the past, like second coming, they did the same relatively thing where this plot did move forward uh, in that regard. But, but if it's like the different sub teams are doing their own thing and then still calling it apart, then if we can skip around, that'd be much better, but eh, we'll see. Dan, we're going to bring you back 
and we're going to talk about Maestro number one. Maestro number one, written by Peter David with art by Herman Peralta. Dale Keown is the artist for the opening scene of this issue, which begins with the Hulk beating up some Sentinels along with Cap, Wolverine, and Thor. Hulk kind of being whisked away to his home where he's eating dinner with Betty and his sons, Thaddeus and Rick. Uh, I'm assuming that his one kid is named Rick because of Rick Jones, which is a little weird, I guess. Not sure if that's actually true or not. So they're kind of chilling. And one of the sons mentions that Betty is dead, which kind of like brings like surprises Bruce. And he kind of stands up during dinner and is like, what are they talking about, Betty? And then she kind of starts acting like a computer and it's like error code, you know, whatever. And that we're, he's like, what the heck's going on? And he actually alludes to Mysterio possibly causing this this illusion which i think is pretty interesting that he would note that character in particular bruce then walks into a room with a bunch of avengers and they all are trying to calm him down and he's kind of freaking out he's like what's going on here and it's really cool because we actually get a throwback to giant man in there which i think was pretty interesting choice to put him in there we also get black widow saying that the sun is getting real low so obviously that's a reference to the age of ultron line so again another mcu reference there which i think was a little weird to put that in this book yeah i don't really like that at all yeah so they're trying to calm him down he kind of like tell me what's going on and then they actually start attacking him and he uses that move where he just like claps his hands together and he throws everyone aside except for vision who is able to stand against it obviously because he can change the density of his body so he actually ends up sticking his hand through the hulk's head and that actually is what triggers him to kind of wake up and see that he's actually being in this like testing facility where he actually runs out and escapes and he runs into his wife or rick's mom i guess i don't know if it's his wife either he's trying to bust him out when he's actually ambushed by a bunch of aim agents and he easily just you know fights them beats them and then he kind of makes his way down the corridors and runs into all these other test subjects one of them being abomination who's like in this vat and hulk eventually runs into an old version of modok who provides hulk with some backstory on kind of everything that's been going on he's actually been asleep for like been out for a while modok kind of explains world war three and basically how like nukes were sent at the united states and russia at the same time which basically triggered like a huge massive armageddon type of event and this group called the black scythe after all this kind of settled down went around and started killing anyone else who survived the attacks which i think was a little weird so like there's i think a scene where they show people being killed in like Paris or whatever which I think was or I don't know it was like some some global monument I don't know what it was yeah and Modox kind of explained to him like we saved you from destruction and you know kind of like making him trying to make him feel like he should be thankful for them for doing that the Hulk eventually escapes and he actually ends up in Hollywood California where he looks at out and sees everything pretty much burnt to a crisp and destroyed except the hollywood sign for some reason which i don't know how that happened but uh yeah as he's kind of like freaking out about this modok comes out hulk jumps up and kind of rearranges the hollywood sign to say hulk instead and it's kind of where the issue ends so we're kind of left with some questions about what's going on uh, i'm assuming this is like an origin story for maestro to kind of see like how the character came to be in future imperfect uh, but i could be wrong on that i thought it was a pretty good issue uh it definitely was longer than a regular size issue i felt like it went really quickly so that was good could no i i agree it did it did go by fast but 
Yeah, the, the part where he wakes up and he that was just a doctor uh, aim that made him think it was Betty. But yeah, he's got the one kid named after Thunderbolt Ross, one after Rick Jones, which is fine. I mean, we've seen uh, characters name their kids after other fictional friends in different universes before. I don't think that's weird. But it's a good start leaning a little bit into kind of Devil Hulk's uh, outlook where everything must be destroyed. But very, it's slightly different in the sense that Hulk just wants to be alone at this point and will he'll conquer whatever he wants to conquer uh i did i i thought the art though was very reminiscent of i can't he drew uh he drew civil war i can't remember steve mcniven yes there is a little steve mcniven in the hint of the inking and the coloring in this i'm thinking the the more mcniven parts definitely come from um peralta but i thought dale kuhn's opening pages also looked really really good and then i mean this is peter david what coming back to the hulk for like the fifth time at this point so obviously, you know, he knows how to write this character. And so far, every time he's come back, it's been entertaining. I know we liked the that last call one shot that we saw uh, earlier back in, what, late 2019. That was really good, too. Yeah. Philadelphia appears in this issue for one panel, which is cool. Like, Dan, I'm kind of annoyed by the Black Widow line, but I guess that's kind of the point. Like, it kind of makes sense in context, but it still little pulls you out. And like Mike said, Peter Davis returned to Hulk over and over again. He did Tempest Fugit. He did The End. He did like an Abomination Origin, which I think was like sort of meant to tie in with Ultimate Destruction video game. He did the Future Imperfect like Battle World miniseries during uh, Secret Wars. So I'm very interested as he keeps doing this to see how Marvel proceeds with his omnibuses and what they possibly do on the final, final one, whatever that is, and whenever that is, since reportedly the first one sold really well. So if they're specifically called Hulk by Peter David. You know, hypothetically, does this Maestro miniseries end up in Hulk by Peter David Omnibus Volume 4 or whatever? It's possible. I mean, the end is after his run and separate. So do they include that? I don't know. Uh, that's just my dumb, like, meta uh, collector comment on it. But it was, yeah. it was fine. I mean, if we get something with Future Imperfect, the end and this, that'd be, that'd be a nice hardcover. Well, Future Imperfect takes place like within his, well, not chronologically, but like it flows out of his run. So yeah, isn't it, it, wasn't it an OGM? No, it was a two issue miniseries, but it fits specifically okay. in between two issues of Incredible Hulk. Okay. So that right. will definitely be included, but like the end and this, Tempest Fugit, Last Call, do they get included? Because they're years after the fact. I think Last Call got collected in that they put out a book of all those 80th anniversary specials, at least. But we'll see what happens down the road. But it's a good start. I'm happy we all enjoyed it. Going into Thor number six, which is the last book of our regular rundown. We'll get into the retro book extravaganza after this. But this is Donny Cates, Nick Klein, colors by Matt Wilson. And this is the Devourer King part six. We open to text that says later, which is Silver Surfer coming to Asgard to visit Thor, who's just been kind of holed up in the throne room, drinking himself silly. And the cause of this being what he saw from the Black Winter as the Silver Surfer wants to know what he saw when he was fighting them. And we flash back to the now when we see Thor just literally absorb the last of energy of Galactus and use it against him to kill him. So not only has he killed Galactus, but he's also pulled off his helmet and made it a giant gate at the at the Bifrost as a decoration, which was pretty cool to see. A Nick Klein draw when Silver Surfer walked through it. He also then uses that energy to then to 
kill the Black Winter ent- entity or essence, if you will, uh, because he didn't want the Black Winter just to use Galactus as a pawn again. So he took them both out and believes that he can figure out any of this big kind of crisis that's eventually going to come. So he turned its attention to the Black Winter and destroyed him. And this kind of, and as like, there's like, he turns into like black snowflakes. So he's falling and it, it's still speaking to him and it tells him that it's going to reveal what the demise actually is going to be. And he sees a vision of Thanos with Mjolnir fused with the infinity gems and a black gauntlet on possibly that's being supplied by Null, knowing Donnie Cates um, and commanding a zombie army of all like the dead heroes. Um, And back in the later, he tells Norrin Rad that he sees nothing more than darkness coming, which obviously, how can that not be a tease for Donny Cates' upcoming event with Null? Because Silver Surfer here also is like Black Silver Surfer from we saw in uh, Silver Surfer Black. So everything of Donny Cates' kind of cosmic uh, stuff uh, converging here. But that's it for Thor. Nick Klein's art here, he's got two awesome splash pages that consistently blow me away. But we'll see what's coming from Donny Cates down the road with his ever-expanding cosmic saga, which, you know, the first part of it's getting turned into an omnibus. So we'll see what happens out of that. But it's time for retro extravaganza. And because it was a short week, we all decided, okay, let's do each choose a retro book. So we random number generated, you know, we picked and rolled for years. So we got 1986. Um... 1979 and 1965 i chose first so i chose the 80s vince chose the 70s and sadly dan got stuck with 1965 but he does get to get his book and done out of the way first so and i'll be doing mine last as we'll go in chronological order of decade but dan i'll leave it to you to take off the retro segment here with avengers number 20 Yes. So as Mike mentioned, I drew the short stick for this week and uh, was left to choose an issue from Marvel during the month of September in 1965. Uh, For anyone who's a Marvel historian, there was not a lot of books back then, so it was pretty slim pickings. So I ended up getting an issue that I actually remember liking a lot when I first read it and reading that whole run, and that was Avengers number 20, written by Stan Lee, with art by Don Heck and inks by Wally Wood. So the issue opens to Cap being thrown off a skyscraper uh, by the swordsman of all people. And uh, the other Avengers, you know, Hawkeye, Scarlet Witch, and Quicksilver are able to save him, which I think show for like the first time, like this team actually working together. Up until this point, obviously this team formed in Avengers number 16, I believe. So there was like not a lot of chemistry with the team at that time. So this was kind of the first time they worked together to kind of save save one of their fellow members. And Cap kind of used this a little bit as a test for them as well. So the swordsman kind of create, upset about the fact that Cap was saved and not killed, strikes out the Avengers. And just as he's about to like attack them or whatever, like he's actually um, vanished and reappears in the lair of the Mandarin of all people. And the Mandarin is just like, yo, swordsman, here's this sword upgrade. Now go kill the Avengers for me. And the way he kind of gets into the the avengers mansion is by having having the mandarin kind of use like a mirage of iron man to like sell the avengers on swordsman's worth and like that he's a good person that they should take him in even though he literally just tried killing them like 10 minutes ago or whatever so i think that's funny but uh the swordsman plans to actually put bombs in the mansion but actually has a change of heart that actually tells, like, you know, he's like, I can't do this. I can't blow up Avengers Mansion. And just as he's about to change his mind, uh, Cap finds him in the act and catches him, ruining his chance, 
chances of ever becoming an Avenger. This is an interesting issue, you know, since, you know, Swordsman would eventually go on to become a full-time Avenger during the Celestial Madonna storyline, I believe. Anyways, a really great issue. Always love reading these issues with the uh, kooky quartet, as they would be called. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of why I picked this issue. Uh, great cover, too. I like the cover. What do you guys think? I, I didn't really enjoy this. It's just very, very, very old-timey writing, but it's 1965, and that's what you're going to get. It's it's kind of like complaints whenever I read old Justice League. I get excited, and then I realize it's like playing with action figures that only have like five points of articulation, where it's very like plain, and, oh, you go do this. Okay, everyone kind of sounds the same, and the constant bickering with the team kind of gets old after a little bit, but... It is kind of nice that we have this here because there's there's different sections we can dissect here that can carry into our other books here. Because my book has Captain America 317 where he's teaming up with Hawkeye and this is much more inexperienced Hawkeye and we actually get comments in Cap 317 of Hawkeye becoming his own leader uh, later on and having much more respect for Captain America. And here he doesn't really respect him that much and they don't get along as uh, so good here. So it's kind of nice to look back on that. And then, you know, Swordsman is kind of a pivotal role in Empire right now. So it all kind of worked out in this weird way of what's going on at Marvel now kind of echoes of the past in a different sense. But it was fine. Like, I didn't hate it, but like, it was definitely, I I don't think it was the snooziest of uh, these. I think the, I think Spider-Woman was, I think, the worst of these. But Vince, what do you think? You just said it's good. You said you just mentioned that it's what's going on at Marvel now. Well, they're out of that. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. So, I mean, I think Marvel was putting out some good comics in 1965, though, personally, I would say uh, this Air Avengers is not that great. I mean, I honestly think that most of the Stan Lee Avengers is just kind of fine. I mean, it's like people talk about how Silver Age X-Men is like, dismissible and i don't i think like pre bushema and thomas avengers is pretty similar and then the harsher way of saying that and just being as um well kind of joking is so don heck here more like don hack i'm just i'm just kidding but for some reason heck kind of has a bad rep with some of marvel old old heads which i honestly kind of see here like the art is not fantastic here the Mandarin looks really damn dumb, but that's not necessarily on heck. That's probably just the design at this time. But also, I mean, Don Heck is competing with Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, Gene Colan, John Buscema, and John Romita. So it's like, who do you put below him on the tier list? I don't, I wouldn't put any of those people below him. I guess there's like, you know, Dick Ayers and Larry Lieber on the outskirts of things, like on the, the Ant-Man book the ant-man uh feature uh entails to astonish which is also not very notable but i think don heck i don't know if he gets better because he's like kind of an old dude at this point already or if he like tries to update with the times i don't know but he moves on to dc and like far as i know i mean it's not like that stuff's amazingly acclaimed but as far as i know people don't like shit talk it all the time and oddly as I'm talking all this shit on the art, the inks here are by Wally Wood, who is, of course, a legend in his own right, but didn't really make 
anything shine much more to me either. But he was also kind of known for phoning in a lot of his mainstream work, except in rare instances where he actually tried like on those like three issues of Daredevil. That's pretty much it. I mean, this didn't impress me. Swordsman is like relevant to like one story where he's basically dead. Uh, he's a dead baby daddy. And then, I don't know. I think the kooky, like a lot of people think the kooky quartet era is cool. And I really don't think it's that good. No, I was, I was curious for myself. I was like, it, it's weird when the team is only fo- like what, four people. I was wondering when it, it, it's like almost another 15 issues or something when they actually get, at least it looks like Wasp and Giant Man join the team after that. And it kind of grows a little yeah. bit. It, it's a yeah. while before they come back. Yeah, I mean, to clarify, I actually, I like the concept of the Cookie Quartet. I like the character dynamics and the characters involved. And like, you know, if it's, say, Kurt Busiek or Mark Wade doing a flashback or referencing the Cookie Quartet, that's really cool. But the actual comics that originally featured the Cookie Quartet, and it's mostly just due to Stan Lee and Don Heck, I just think they're a little stale. And yeah. about, about 20... 25 issues after this, Avengers gets really, really good. But this, it's just, eh, it's just there. I got November 1979, and I picked Spider-Woman number 20. This is written by Mark Grunewald, which is also going to connect. Art by Frank Springer and Mike Esposito. So this is actually Grunewald's final issue of Spider-Woman, which he jumped onto with number nine. Jessica's whole life is falling apart as he wraps up his run. I'm not sure if he knew this was his final issue or not. She loses her job and her apartment, and they're not, like, entirely explained. I'm not sure if that's something that the next writer picks up and explains further. She, Since she's in this crappy situation, she essentially goes to her old employer and steals some money. But then she has second thoughts, and she goes to return it. And... Peter Parker just happens to be in town and it is relevant in town because Spider-Woman is actually based in LA at least at this time, you know, all the way across the country from where Peter is based in New York, but he's on a photo job and the two of them converge. She shocks him while he's not in costume as Peter Parker. And then he slips on the costume, chases after her. He does comment on the lower buildings overall in LA, which makes the swinging harder. It's not quite the suburbs and the famous Peter David's issue, Commuter Cometh, but it's, it's close to that. The two of them are not familiar with each other. So both of them were like, hey, what's going on with this whole spider motif thing that we both have? Um, Spider-Man is like, hey, is she ripping me off? And if actually, I think Spider-Woman more thinks that. And Spider-Woman also later thinks when he says, hey, I'm Spider-Man, she's like, well, I'm Spider-Woman, like, does this guy have the same ridiculous background as me? So they managed to squeeze in a two-page origin recap of her insane backstory, um, which was probably somewhat helpful or new to you guys. Then Spidey has some other web-swing goofs when he webs onto, like, her boot. And so Spider-Woman, she, like, she doesn't fly, but she has, like, she glides and i guess there's a lot of wind in la a lot of times and so spidey hitting her with the web basically tanks her momentum and gliding so she's about to crash the ground and die 
And of course, you know, when his web pulls off her boot and disconnects, he starts falling to his death, but they figure it out and save each other. And they finally compare notes and Spidey's like, oh, you're not a crazy person and vice versa. So they just split up and Peter Parker, you know, off panel goes back to New York. That's basically the whole story here. Frank Springer's art is just a little cheesecakey. I think I'm pretty sure in other issues, there are even like scenes where it's in silhouette, but you'll, there are occasional scenes of Jessica like getting in and out of her costume or things like that. This issue, it was relatively tame. You know, you don't have anything like that. So it's only cheesecake insofar as how her costume molds to her to her body, which either makes him the perfect artist for this series or not. Your mileage may vary depending on what you want uh, in a book like this. That's basically it. It's, it's, I mean, the writing is a little clunky. This is Grunewald's first series that he wrote, as far as I know. But then I figured I'd just talk about Spider-Woman and the series in general. Before Grunewald was Marv Wolfman, and then after Grunewald was Michael Flesher, then there's Chris Claremont for a chunk, and then there's Anne Nascenti finishes the series. And it's across a 50-issue series plus the extras. Like Spider-Woman was one of those characters where her first appearance was not Spider-Woman number one. I think it was like Marvel Spotlight or one of those kind of books. And the, the run just, it, it doesn't neatly split into convenient runs um, as far as, you know, if and when they ever do epic collections and things like that. So, and none of it's really considered that great or super relevant. I think one or two, I think Claremont might introduce like a really obscure character here that he pulls into X-Men, which basically applies to every, all of his pre and contemporary work um, in relation to X-Men. But other than that, like it's not really considered great or notable. So I don't really intend to ever own any Spider-Woman comics from this run. But I'm interested to see what you guys think of Jessica Drew. It was, um, it was, nothing really happened. It was very plain. The pacing was all over the place. It was inconsistent and choppy, definitely. I thought the art was all right. Like, it was just very kind of house style to me. It didn't feel like anything special or anything bad to me. And, you know, it, it is what it was. If, if you're saying this was Mark Grunwald's first series, this is definitely reads like someone who hadn't figured out their craft yet because, you know, next issue we're going to figure out someone who was doing a lot better <laughs> on a series. But it was, yeah. The other thing too is that they don't exchange names at all. Like Peter just forgets to ask Spider-Woman who she is. And also Spider-Woman hasn't heard of Spider-Man, who I feel like definitely everyone would know who Spider-Man is in the Marvel Universe by 1979. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think this this book is one of those examples of like, clearly what marvel does with a lot of their books especially when heroes first meet is there's a misunderstanding and they fight each other which is kind of what this book does in a, in a way not not but they as didn't fight they just ended up yeah. chasing each other i'm saying it's not as traditional as you would probably see in like the late 60s early 70s yeah and another thing too is i don't know if it's just early grunwald stuff or if it's just his work overall but there's just so much like exposition in the beginning of this issue. It's just a slog to read through like half, like half the panels sometimes are just like narration of like her, of her story. And like this whole thing about stealing money. And I'm like, what the hell am I reading here? Like this seems like it's from, this has more text than the Avengers one did. 
Shit. As far as running Spider-Man jokes, uh, a chimney is destroyed here. Well, there's there's that at least. All right. Our final retro book, which is Captain America number 317, Mark Grunwald, Paul Neary, and Dennis Janke on art. And this is from May of 1986. The story here is called Death Rose, and we open with the villain called Crossfire getting escorted to the courthouse for his trial, but it's broken up by the Death Rose gang, and they all have costumes kind of similar to the Wrecking Crew, but they have like this circus gimmick where they're all good at throwing different weapons. And Hawkeye and Mockingbird are on their little speeder bike thing uh, where they're scheduled to testify for this hearing because uh, they're the ones who brought him in. So they arrive right after all this commotion, but back in Brooklyn Heights, Steve Rogers is helping his girlfriend Bernie Rosenthal move out as she's getting ready to attend law school. And we kind of have this scene where neighbors are popping in and out everywhere. It's almost like a sitcom, but they decide to throw her a going away party. And Steve's also going to end up moving out as he feels like he can't live there if Bernie's not going to be around either. But we'll cut back to the ringmaster, who's the leader of the Death Throws game, making an offer to Crossfire to join them. And together they can team up and catch Hawkeye and they can, you know, try to send them back to the Avengers for ransom money. Clint and Bobby uh, meet up with Steve at his party later in the night we also see falcon there but he doesn't join the action in this he's just kind of off the side dancing but clint pulls steve outside to talk shop so clint briefs steve on the events earlier in the day and that the avengers didn't have any information but maybe captain america's tip hotline will and will they go and check on that and lo and behold it does and there's the scheduled rendezvous point for midnight and clint and steve get into costume and team up they got to duck out of the party which uh steve isn't super happy about having to you know, dodge the party on his girlfriend's final night in the apartment. But work is work is essentially uh, the excuse he gives uh, as he's Captain America. And they're both kind of prepping that it's going to be a trap. So as they get right before the rendezvous point, Cap gives Hawkeye his shield for protection and Cap takes the bow to lay down recovery fire for Hawkeye. And inside, of course, it is a trap, and they release this giant net trying to catch Hawkeye, but the duo manage to escape and proceed to beat up the Death Rose. Mockingbird also makes an appearance late in the game to help out and save the crew. And then Steve gets back to his apartment three hours later to find that the party has ended over an hour ago and that Bernie is gone and that there's a letter attached to the door stating that she'll write for him again when when she gets settled back up in law school. But this looks to be the end of their relationship for now, as Steve is now alone in the apartment with nothing around him. And that's the issue. It, it's pretty good. I liked it. It's, I think, more famous for its cover. I know Dan owns a physical copy of this issue. Uh, he had that framed up, but I think it's in storage now as he's going through a move, so we can't show it off on camera. But I like this. I liked the art. It, once again, the art was, it reminds me of Mike Zek. If, I feel like if you were to tell me this was Mike Zek, I'd believe you. So nothing really grabbing or notor notoriety from the art here, but it's just an overall good comic book. I don't think it was amazing by any chance. I think, like I said, the cover was much more um, entertaining and remembered than the actual issue inside, but I think it was pretty good stuff. And then I'll open it up to thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I thought I really liked it. Uh, I thought it read pretty good. Seeing Clinton Hawkeye in it too, I think was a pretty welcome addition to the book. It's I don't know if it's just because I haven't read a lot of solo like Captain America books, but there's something to me that just feels weird of uh, about Cap having like a civilian girlfriend. Like I don't know what it is. Like it's just weird, and the whole casualness casualness about like them breaking up is. 
a little strange to me too because it's kind of like oh we're we're gonna be like cordial with each other but we're really just breaking up and we're leaving so that kind of threw me a little bit i don't know this reads really well and yeah i i i can't wait to actually read this whole run it's gonna be exciting yeah while we were picking our books before the show and everything it honestly didn't entirely register to me that we had two grunwald books so it is interesting comparison like i said spider woman was his first writing gig, even though we read his final issue in the book. And this issue is just barely entering kind of the big sweet spot of his run on cap. I would say the sweet spot's probably around like issue 320 through, I think it's like 380 or maybe it's 360 or something, basically when uh, Ron Lim leaves. And in fact, he's essentially asserting his control on this book right now by kicking Steve's girlfriend, Bernie, out of it. And she's been around since around issue 250, was created by Roger Stern and John Byrne in their very short-lived run, and then lasted all the way through J.M. DeMatteis and Mike Zeck. The art here, Paul Neary, like this is what I was saying, like very shortly you'd have a little bit better artists on Grunwald's run. You'd have Tom Morgan, and then you'd have uh, Kieran Dwyer, and then you'd have Ron Lim and everything. So Paul Neary, he's just kind of the in-between uh, period at the beginning of Grunwald's run. Paul Neary would eventually become editor-in-chief of Marvel UK. And he's also known a lot more really as an inker and would ink really big books like way after this, like uh, Ultimates with Brian Hitch. But this issue is also kind of a good encapsulation of Gru's run as a whole, both positively and negatively, because you have this group of D-list villains who all throw things and that kind of gimmicky thinking is what is part of what helped Grunwald's run last so long, but also eventually made it get repetitive and kind of peter out when eventually he gets to a story arc where it's like Cap versus every single female supervillain ever um, and just stuff like that. Or like Modoc, but female. It's Modam. Um, and it, it, he just, you know, Grunwald eventually had put every single idea possible on the page with his run. And that's both the glory of it, but also kind of what drags it down. So I thought this was a very interesting issue to read and to compare to Spider-Woman. It, it's funny as we've kind of now picked up doing the retros, we've we've kind of checked in on Mark Grunwald's Captain America run in very different segments because I think the last time we read a Captain America issue by him, it was in the 90s where he was in that stupid power armor. So I think we read his final issue. It might it might have actually yeah you're right it might have been his final issue, which that was you know way past its prime. But this was this was all right. It wasn't great, but it was good. Like you can see the workings of it getting really good. But if that is it for the rundown, we have picks of the week. So how does this work? We we still can't pick the retro even though we did three. You got to pick something you read this week. Okay. Um, mine is Empire X Men. Empire X Men. Dan. Maestro number one. Yeah, I'm going Maestro number one. That was pretty easy. Pretty easy no, pick. Was... There wasn't a lot of stuff. No, to choose I'd say from Maestro number and... one, and then Thor would be my runner-up. So yeah, it was not not a very large week though. Next week it's it's kind of insane. So we have that to deal with. But that's the show. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, yeah, we're just going to bow out here because it's late. Thank you.